Hey, so um, Walk for Life was this morning. Anybody at Walk for Life this morning? Come on, so good. The... Um, they, uh, they were giving out some t-shirts that says, I speak for those who cannot speak. And on the back it has CareNet, which is the Crisis Pregnancy Center for here on the peninsula. So this is an extra large. So I'm just going to lay this here and uh, first come, first serve. So testing your courage tonight a little bit. So somebody might come on up here even now. Come on. There we go. I know. We, we like a little courage here at City Life. The um, last week. Last week, for uh, you saw JB and Charlie up on the screen. You know, we did a big push for them to uh, sell tickets, and uh, they raised uh, this past Tuesday night over three thousand dollars. Come on, so good. So we're going to be talking about that as a church a lot more because we're going to get a lot more involved in that situation and in their and in their circumstance. And so the the what we've been calling the buddy system has been renamed. They they've come up with the name which I think is fantastic, the Buddy Brigade. Isn't that a great name? I know. So there's a sign up if you're interested in learning about what this is gonna what what this is gonna require, which is not gonna be much. It's just once a month that you would sign up to be a buddy to a child with special needs. You might say, I don't have any training in special needs, right? This was perfect, Steve wrap-up today for, for worship is that that's okay. We're going to give you all the training you need to be a helper to that child uh, when they're in child care so their family can be in here in the service. Almost every family with a special needs child is never able to be in a service just like this because the child care services for churches like ours are staffed by volunteers and they don't have the unique training that a special needs child requires. And so we're, we're going to be one of those churches that says, no, we're going to make a difference in the lives of these families so they they can come and worship and be a part. And the Buddy Brigade is just the beginning. There's going to be ministries that this ministry is going to expand to things that we'll be able to do for them during the week. Support 90% of every marriage when there's a special needs child in the home ends in divorce, right? There's just serious challenges that these families face. And so we really feel like God is challenging us to be a church that comes alongside. And so there's a, a sign up just across from the Welcome Center when you come in that entrance to the church. Uh, and you can sign up and there's going to be a drawing for a Starbucks gift card. I believe there's also some famous Micah Mitchell cookies. Are there some famous Micah Mitchell cookies? Yeah. So the bake sale's not till next week. I mean, till the 20th, but this is just a little, we could call this a little appetizer, right? A little bit of foretaste of some good things to come. And every year, right, there's chocolate-covered bacon there. Am I right? Every year. I'm just telling you, that bake sale May 20th, you better come hungry. Come hungry and bring your money. So we are back in a series. I talked to Shani. She said it would be okay to just go back and preach the regular service tonight. So if, if, if you were here last week, you know why that's really a lot funnier of a joke than you just responded to. But the, um, So we're, we're in, a, in a series on discipleship, which, which we call Praxis. And there's a website that's dedicated. So if you're visiting with us tonight or if you're new to the church and that phrase is unfamiliar to you, then you should go to letspraxis.com and everything that you're going to want to know about our discipleship model is going to be in there for you. And so we're just camped out in this. We've been in it since early, the early part of this year. We're going to stay in it until God uh, says otherwise. And so uh, we're, we're just excited. To, to have a conversation as a church of, of why this word discipleship is such an important part of the Christian experience. It's based on four numbers, the 1, the 6, the 12, and the 24. And this is kind of a little synopsis. It says, when Jesus invites me to be his disciple, he expects me to obey his commands. 
I obey those commands by walking in spiritual pathways. And when I walk in those pathways, I become a virtuous person. So, so why should you care about discipleship? The, the verse that really is the springboard for us for this, this discipleship model is Matthew 16, 24. And, it, and it's where Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, follower, you must turn from your selfish ways and take up your cross and follow me. Now, now listen to what he says when you get down to verse 27. For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. That word deeds in the Greek is the word praxis. You, you and I one day are going to have a conversation with God, Right? All of us, one day, are going to stand before Christ and have to give an account for the life that we live. Now, if you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, heaven is promised to you because that's based on grace. But, but he has a lot that he's going to talk to us about. What did we do with the life that he entrusted us with? That's what discipleship is all about, is my journey as a follower of Christ in this life. Now, listen to Luke 18, 24 to 30. 24 to 30. When Jesus saw this, he said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Right? This is after the rich young ruler. He tells him, go sell everything you have, give your money to the poor. And he walked away because he was a man of great wealth. It says, in fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now those who heard this said, then who in the world can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible for people is possible with God. Peter said, we've left our homes to follow you. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. Let me just give a clarifier there, right? So that seems like, would, would God ever ask me to give up my wife or would God ever ask me to give up my children? You have to remember that when Jesus said these words 2,000 years ago, that to be a Christian, that, that oftentimes people would be ostracized from their families. It's not that they would give up those family members, it's that their family members would give up on them. Does that make sense? And that still happens in many parts of the world today. In, in countries where, let's say, that are, that are are strictly Islamic or, or countries where there's not freedom of, of religion for many other reasons, sometimes political reasons, is that not that that person is forsaking their family, but that family forsakes them, just as a clarifier there. Verse 30. Listen to what he says. We'll be, we'll be repaid many times over in this life and we'll have eternal life in the world to come. Now, now why is that important? Because the, the, the message of our church is heaven now, heaven forever. And, and, and this is one of the texts that give us that phrase, is that when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, the heaven with the capital H is promised to you. But the heaven that we talk about with the lowercase h, in speaking of the experience that God wants you to have in this life, you will not experience all the goodness that God has for you unless you fully devote yourself to this journey of discipleship. Discipleship is about preparing you for the eternity that's to come, but it's also about enriching your life in the here and now. 
For too many people, they grow up in a, in a theology and a teaching that, that when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, that it's about deferred gratification, that you, you're going to have to give up all the good stuff in this life if you want to go to heaven. The devil has been perpetuating that lie in the world from the beginning of time. Anything that God is going to ask you to lay down to become a Christian, he's just protecting you from mediocrity. He's protecting you from settling for less. Anything that he's going to ask you to walk away from, it's because you're too good for that stuff anyways, and the life that he has for you is even better. There's got to be some belief that you have that the life that Christ is going to lead us into is going to be the greatest adventure of our lives. He says it right here. He said, yeah, it's going to take sacrifice, but what you're going to gain many times over, he doesn't say break even. He doesn't say it's just going to be a little bit better. Many times over in this life, and we'll have eternal life in the world to come. Twelve pathways are the spiritual activities. It's the stuff I do day in and day out. Worship, scripture, prayer, fasting, relationship, gathering, reaching, accountability, service, rest, stewardship, and generosity. We're going to be talking about rest tonight and maybe some next week. We'll see how far we get tonight. I don't want to hurry through this conversation about rest because it's a conversation that's lost to churches too often today. If you were to ask me in the 10 years that we've been here to pick one teaching that, that, that we've brought to city life that's impacted the most lives, it would be this teaching on rest that we're going to dig into over the next couple of weeks. If you were to just ask me to pick one, this, this would be it. This conversation about the practice of rest in people's lives today, not just people that don't go to church, but even people in the church, I believe that the lack of rest that you see in people's lives today is one of the greatest sins that you find in our current generation. When you start doing what you should, you are less likely to keep doing what you shouldn't. And as my life begins to fill with virtues, it displaces the ungodly attitudes that were there before. Let me read that statement to you again. When you start doing what you should, you're less likely to keep doing what you shouldn't. And as my life begins to fill with virtues, it displaces the ungodly attitudes that were there before. Such a big part of our philosophy on discipleship is to spend a little bit less time of talking to you about the stuff you need to stop doing. And we talk to you about all the stuff that you need to start doing. Because my experience has been, if you're doing the stuff you're supposed to do, it has a way of displacing all the other stuff that doesn't belong. And when you give yourself to this journey of discipleship, what begins to happen is that you create a spiritually fertile environment for your soul. And the virtues or the character of Christ, which is the 24 for us in our model, they begin to blossom and flourish and grow inside of you. And it begins to push out the attitudes that don't belong. This picture that's up on the screen reminds me of road trips. Anybody ever been on a road trip with your family? Yeah. What's the goal of every road trip? Come on, at least survive. Spoken from a parents with young children. That we get there alive, right? Yeah, bathroom breaks. We said to minimize those, right? Why, why do we want to minimize the bathroom breaks? Because we want to what? Yeah, we want to get there fast, right? So, so some of you, you're, you're, just, you're just in it for the journey. It doesn't matter how long you get there. But you're weird, right? The rest of us, we're like, come on, it's a race. 
I got it. The last time we went, I'm shaving some minutes off. If it costs me a speeding ticket, I'm good with that because I got to get there, right? You have, when you see the sign for the rest stop, a conversation begins in the car. Has anybody got to go, right? Right? If, if we don't stop at this one, can you make it to the next one, right? One of the, 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 the clarifications that's, that's given in our car is I'm not in pain yet because that's how we roll, right? We want to get there. And if you're not suffering yet, then we're not stopping, right? And if you don't have to go, you better go when we stop because we're not stopping in five minutes because you couldn't find it when we were there five minutes ago. This is, this is how we travel. And for some of you, this is how you live. It's not just a road trip for you. It's your every day. It's the pace. It's the, I gotta do more. I gotta get there. I gotta accomplish. And, and if I'm not in pain, I'm not slowing down. And if the people around me aren't suffering, then we're not going fast enough. For too many of us, this, this defines not just our vacations, but it defines our everyday life, which is one of the reasons why we're taking vacations to get away from that. But if you're one of these people that suffer from this pace and this hectic schedule of life, then that goes with you on vacation. You come back just as tired as when you left. So let me ask you this question. We like a little participation here at City Life. When you don't get enough rest, you... Fill in the blank. Now answer it for yourself, not the person sitting next to you. Can't be a Christian, Vanessa said. She said that, I didn't. Right? Sally. Cranky. Who else? Jessica. Cry. Yes. Jovi's like, praise the Lord. She's a crier, right? Raven. Mean to other people. Kristen. You get coffee. Nice. I like it. And if you don't get the coffee, what happens? We don't want to know. She says. She, she says, move on. Lose your filter. Oh, that's good, right? It just, it comes right out, right? There's no, huh? yeah? You get migraines. Yeah, there can be, right? There can be physical. We eat unhealthy, except on the 20th, and that's okay, right? Okay, right. We eat unhealthy. Yeah, we get tired, and we, give our, we, we find that we have a sense of permission, right, to reward ourselves for how hard we've worked. Sharon, need a nap. Come on. Cortez, mess things up. Yeah, we lose our focus. Yeah, lose perspective. Somebody else, anybody else when you get tired? Maybe not you, but you know a friend, that person. There you go, Mark. Yeah, you risk getting sick. Your immune system is compromised. Marvin, did you have your hand up? Somebody, oh yeah. Yeah, you get even less done. That's true, right? Because you're overtired. You get less focus. I remember that we even with with our, our kids when they were they were uh, um, uh, little and they weren't they weren't sleeping and we were talking to to other parents and and one of the things they said is that that, that don't keep them up later if they're not sleeping through the night. You got to put them to bed earlier because when they're overtired they sleep less. We were like revelation, right? It doesn't. It's not just true for kids, right? We get overtired. Sometimes our body has a hard time. Sleeping. Consequences for rest. Ecclesiastes 4, 5 and 6. Listen to this. Fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin. And yet, better to have one handful 
with quietness and peace than two handfuls with hard work and chasing after the wind. That's a great word, isn't it? The Bible's so rich. Because it's acknowledging you can't just have rest at the expense of productivity. God expects us, expects us to be a productive, contributing member of society. So we're going to talk about it in just a little bit. That, that even in our journey of discipleship, we have to labor. So we can't give up all sense of productivity just for this, this one goal of being restful. But in our journey of being restful and productive, there has to be some sense of balance in this life. Because if you give up on all of rest to be more productive, Ecclesiastes, which uses this phrase many times, chasing after the wind, is this poetic phrase that's talking about you're never going to actually be able to accomplish it. It's like it's chasing after the wind. You're never going to catch it. So you're going to live your life with this constant sense of being unfulfilled. So the writer of Ecclesiastes is Solomon, inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's productivity in life. There's balance, there's rest in life, and we have to find that place of equilibrium. Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Honor the Sabbath in everything you do on that day, and don't follow your own desires or talk idly. Then the Lord will be your delight. I will give you great honor and satisfy you with the inheritance I promised to your ancestor Jacob. I, the Lord, have spoken, which is a poetic way of saying, do what I say, right? You can use that in your home. I, your father, have spoken, right? Do what I say. Matthew 8, 23 to 27. Matthew 8, 23 to 27. I like this story. Matthew 8, 23 to 27. Then Jesus got into the boat and started across the lake with his disciples, and suddenly a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. Who said naps? Somebody said naps. Was it Sharon? Come on. Naps are biblical, especially when it's in a boat. Hallelujah. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Jesus responded, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. And he got up, he rebuked the wind and the waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. The disciples were amazed. Who is this man, they asked. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, we turn to this text so often because there's so many different kinds of storms that we face in this life. Storms can come through unexpected crisis. Storms can come through a, a medical diagnosis that's, that's life-altering. Storms can come through post-traumatic stress syndrome. We think about all of our military brothers and sisters who come back from the field and the struggles that sometimes that they have. These are real storms in life. Sometimes there's storms in your families because of conflict. Sometimes there's storms in your life because you're grieving the loss of something. Sometimes there's storms just because there's work drama, right? Their list goes on and on and on. There are going to be enough storms in our lives that we had nothing to do with creating. And I think part of the wisdom of Ecclesiastes in this warning of not chasing after the wind is God saying, hey, don't add to your storm. 
Because one of the storms in our life is this busyness, this pace that's destroying us and destroying our family, and it's minimizing the impact that we're supposed to have in this life because we don't have anything left to give to the moments that God created us for. For some of you here tonight and next Saturday, you need Jesus to stand up in your boat and his peace be still to you is keep my Sabbath. There's a command that he wants to bring to your circumstance that can calm your storm. There's a word that he has for you in the midst of this boat, right? You, you think you're going down with the ship because this, this storm is just is raging. Jesus comes and says, hey, there is a Sabbath rest that's waiting for you that will calm the seas of your life. I love this story because Jesus, right, he's on a road trip. He's not on Interstate 95, but he's in a boat. They're trying to get somewhere. And Jesus understands that this prophetic imagery that one day be here for us is that Jesus understands that you're trying to get somewhere in your life. What he's saying is, hey, you're actually going to get there sooner and better if you slow down and invite peace and calm into your life through the practice of a weekly Sabbath. There's three parts to this teaching. I like to talk about rest awareness, rest attitude, and rest action. I think that we're going to get through the first one tonight, and then we'll pick up attitude and action next week. Hebrews chapter 4 is the text that I like to work out of when, whenever we're exploring this idea of rest. We don't know who the writer of Hebrews is. We know it's the Holy Spirit, obviously, but we don't know the instrument or the who was the instrument that the Holy Spirit used to give us this book. Some books are entitled uh, based on who wrote them, right? Like the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then some books are written to emphasize who they're written to. Like First uh, and Second Corinthians, there was an ancient city called Corinth. And so those letters were written to the church of Corinth. You've got First and Second Timothy, right? Those are written to Timothy by Paul. The writer of Hebrews is emphasizing the audience of this letter. That whoever this person was, God picked to write down some critical things that the next generation of Jewish people who were abandoning Judaism as a way of salvation and embracing Christianity through Jesus Christ's message, this writer wanted to make sure that they understood, right? Because one day whoever wrote this knew that they weren't going to be here and all of this had to be imparted to the next generation so it could travel down generation and generation as it now comes to us. And Hebrews 4 talks about rest. Now the writer of Hebrews is trying to help these young Jewish believers understand that there is now a rest that comes to us that we're forgiven into and never have to work for. There's a rest that we can be forgiven into that we'll never have to work for. So whenever you're reading here at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of verse four, or chapter 4, when, when it uses the phrase, this rest, that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. I like to call this rest paternal rest. It's the kind of rest that comes to us when we make a vow of devotion to Christ and we're reconciled to God. And in that moment, there is a peace that fills our lives because our relationship with our Creator is restored. Now, how many of you are married? 
How many of you have ever had an argument with your spouse? Yeah, I hope all the hands are up now. Because then if not, next week we're going to talk about denial. All right? right? There's this feeling, right, when you're having a conversation. Right? A discussion. You feel separated, right? You feel emotionally disconnected. And if you're a husband and you're saying, I don't know if I feel that way, that's part of the problem. Right? You, you feel the sense of being disconnected. And, and, and when you work through whatever you're talking about, right, there's this moment where you are reconciled and you have this, this feeling of, of, of connectedness to this person again. It's not just with our spouses, it's for, with any meaningful relationship. If you've had a, a best friend and you've been at odds with each other, sometimes that happens with our relationship with our kids. Or we feel disjointed or dis, disconnected, right? There's moments where, where, as a parent, we're responsible for bringing consequences when there's, there's poor behavior. And, and then sometimes our, our kids, right, they, they kind of they shut us out emotionally. It's, like it's their way, right, of, of coping with the conflict. And then there's that moment where your, your teenage child, child comes back and says, you know what, I've been, I've been thinking and you're right, I shouldn't have done that. And then there's the angels of heaven begin to sing the hallelujah chorus, right? And you're just trying to maintain your composure because you're trying to be cool, right? But you get it. There's this moment where there's a reconnection. You and I are born into this world disconnected from God. We're disconnected from our creator relationally. When the Bible talks about being born into sin, that's what it's talking about. And when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, it's the first moment in your life where you get reconnected with the one who made you. You get reconnected with the purpose that he has for you. you there's this moment where, where there is a peace and a rest that you find because God forgives you. This concept was completely foreign to Judaism. Because the way that you engaged God and tried to reconcile to him was through the Mosaic Law. Now, why God did it that way, that's another sermon for another time. But when Jesus came, my relationship is restored not through effort, not through work, but for forgiveness. There is a peace that we find that we're forgiven into that we never have to work for. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to make sure that the, the essence and the understanding of, of, of this, this message of grace that comes. He doesn't use the word grace or she doesn't use the word grace. Paul emphasizes this word grace, but I love that the writer of Hebrews picks up on the word rest. Because if you've ever experienced grace, rest is a perfect word to communicate what it feels like to you. Grace is what God extends. Rest is what you feel. Right? Grace is what he gives. Peace and calm and rest is what your soul experiences. Now, what's so genius about the Holy Spirit in inspiring the writer of Hebrews is that the writer of Hebrews, their intention is to communicate this idea of what I like to call paternal rest. But the way that they talk about paternal rest is through comparing and contrasting it to the other kinds of rest that the Jewish people had a grasp of. And even though the intention of Hebrews 4 is to teach paternal rest, the subtle ways that the Holy Spirit uses other rests to distinguish paternal rest, this gets lost on people because the dominant part of the text is paternal. 
But when we dig in there, we find that there's this beautiful teaching about all four together, which I like to call all the rest. Because we need all four in our lives if we're going to experience the fullness of calm and peace that God intends for us to have. Listen to Hebrews 4, chapter 9. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. Let me read it to you out of the New American Standard. Chapter 4, verse 9. For there remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Let me read it to you out of the living. Let me read it to you. No, that's going to be later. All right, here you go. So the word rest there, the word that the Holy Spirit inspires the writer of Hebrews to use is a word that's never been written before. Right? They make up, this is how we know that they were probably a preacher because they made up words. Right? And it's the word in the Greek, sabbatismos. This is the first time, there's no other ancient document that has this word used in it. And, and it means a rest that is without end. And I think the writer of Hebrews in this moment, inspired by the Holy Spirit, when they use when, when this culminating verse, this culminating verse, let, let me read it again, 4-9. So there is a special rest awaiting for the people of God. What he's saying is, or what she's saying is that until you embrace all four of these kinds of rest in your life, you're never going to experience an unending rest. And the way that we experience the perfect peacefulness of rest in our lives is that we don't treat it like a buffet and say, I'm going to do these two but not those two. That every rest that God offers to us is necessary for the human experience to walk in the peace that he created us to have. Sabbatismos, an unending rest. Or I like to use define that word as all the rest, an uninterrupted rest, paternal rest. Hebrews 4, 1 through 2, God's promise of entering into his rest, this is paternal rest, still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news, right, this is the gospel that God has prepared, this rest, right, paternal rest, salvation through Christ has been announced has been announced to us just as it was to them, but they did, they, but it did them no good because they did not have faith to believe. You know, all of our kids growing up, right, they had little things that they would, would say, things that we remember, things that you jot down. And if you're a parent of a, of, of a child and right, you're calling your, your in-laws or friends and so you're never going to guess what they said and they did, right? And what, what do they often say? Oh, write that down, right? Because you're going to forget it. And, and Claire's phrase, when, when she would want us to pick her up, is, is she in here? Am I embarrassed? She's not in here. She's working in childcare. Okay, so that's good, right? Oh, she's not in here. Let me tell you another story. No, I'm just kidding. Right, she would say she just turned thirteen this week. Right, is that she? She would say, "Hold you me," right? She just come, hold you me, right? That was her her phrase of 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 I want you to pick me up, right? There's a hold you me inside of all of us, right? It's that it's that longing that you have for your relationship with God to be restored. But even once you come to Him and say, "Hold you me," and make a vow of devotion to Christ. If that's the only rest that you have, it's a good one. But it breaks God's heart. Because he says to us, as he does with so many other areas of our life, there was so much more. 
There was so many. Yeah, that rest secures heaven for you. But Jesus says, hey, I didn't just die for you to be here with us for all eternity. I died so you could have some of what's there here in the here and now. And not just for your sake, so your life could be the witness that it was supposed to be to the rest of the world. Because our life as a devoted follower of Christ is supposed to inspire other people to say, I don't know what that person has, but I want some of that myself. And you're, and you're not going to be that light to the world if your light's dim. And one of the reasons why our light is dim is because we're worn out. And one of the lies that the church perpetuates in the world today is that you don't need these other rests as long as you've got this one. Hey, this one's, this one's eternally significant. But if the other ones didn't matter, then God wouldn't have created them. Something inside of me has got to say, God, I want everything that you have for me. It starts with paternal rest. It starts with a hold-you-me heart towards God. It starts with recognizing there's a rest that I'm forgiven into that I'm never going to work for. But it doesn't stop there. Listen to four eight, verse, chapter 4, verse 8. Now, if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest. Now, I'm le- reading out of the New Living Translation. Your translation might, might use a different phrase than this rest. But whenever, again, the writer of Hebrews is referring to this rest, it's talking about the paternal rest. It's talking about our relationship with God being restored. And here's one of those comparative moments. Here's one of these contrasting moments, right? If Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest. Now, now what's the writer of Hebrews talking about? The writer of Hebrews here is talking about what I would call a purpose rest. The reason why Joshua is referenced because Joshua is the one that led the people of God into the promised land, right? Moses couldn't go forward, another sermon for another time. Joshua, the next generation, he steps up. He becomes the new leader of the Israelites. He leads them into the promised land. And once they got there, man, they were just, it was like vacation. No, it wasn't. That's not what my Bible says. They had to war. They had to battle. They had to take cities. They had to labor for food and plant crops, right? That, that, that when they stepped into the promised land, when they stepped into the purpose that God had for them, that that's really when the work began for them, right? They had to labor, labor. They had to be productive. It required effort. I'm telling you, there were, there were nights, I'm sure, that when people went to bed and they were thinking, I'm not sure this is the promise I thought it was. There's a purpose rest that God has for you and that he has for me to work for the kingdom of heaven, and it's going to require effort. It's going to mean that you're tired at the end of the day. But when you get done with it and you see how much you've accomplished for God, There's a peace that comes to your heart. There's a rest. Even though there were hard days, as we read the Bible, you see that they always got to a place where they began to say, you know what? There's a celebration that's happening in my heart because I'm accomplishing what God asks of me. God has a purpose rest that he wants you to find. For some of you, it's the buddy brigade, right? 
For some of you right now, one of the ways that you labor for the kingdom of God is you're helping set this place up and, 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 and resetting it for NRBC when they come after. Well, all the different ways that you're laboring for the kingdom, missions trips, right? And, and re, like the money raising for, for JB and Nate, right? There's work to the kingdom of heaven. And when we begin to gain some sense of understanding what God is asking for us in the season of life, we might be tired at the end of the day and maybe we have some doubts along the way, but eventually the Holy Spirit resonates with us. He says, no, 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 this is part of why I put you on this earth, to do these things for us. And when we feel that affirmation from our Father, there's a rest that we find. There's a peace that fills our heart. So the writer of Hebrews says, hey, there's a, there's a paternal rest, and that's different from my purpose rest. And then the writer of Hebrews makes this, this passing reference to what I would call a perpetual rest. Hebrews 4, 10, and 11. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fail. Now, the writer of Hebrews is talking again about this paternal rest. This is the verse I was referencing before out of the Living Bible. Listen to how the Living Bible renders it. Christ has already entered there. He is resting from his work. What's the work that it's talking about? It's talking about the work of the cross, making the way for us to be reconciled to God, right? Part of Christ's work, his ultimate work, was to make paternal rest possible, just as God did after creation. But this passing reference to, which I think the Living Bible gets this verse better than most, which is a little bit counterintuitive because it's what we would call a loose translation, but I think they're the ones that got it right. Because the writer of Hebrews is trying to help us understand that, yeah, there's another kind of rest. Christ has entered there. Where? Heaven. I like to call this perpetual rest. See, there's a rest that that we can't even grasp yet. There's a rest and a a peace and a calm that's so beyond comprehension and our human experience, and it's called heaven. And we're going to be there with him for all eternity. And can I just tell you when that's settled for you, when you experience paternal rest and you begin to give yourself to purpose rest and then you begin to reflect on this idea of perpetual rest, even though the majority of perpetual rest won't be found until we get there, I think you, you get a little bit of peace in your heart knowing what's waiting for you after you die. All of these kinds of rests, the writer of Hebrews is saying to these young Jewish believers, hey, I know all of this stuff about rest is, is, is purpose rest and, and this idea of, of, of perpetual rest. These aren't new for you. But this idea of a, of a, of a rest that I'm forgiven into and don't have to work for, it's, 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 you've got to bring this into your belief system as a devoted follower of Christ. And then the last comparison that the writer of Hebrews uses is a physical rest. Hebrews 4.4. 4. Listen to this verse. We know it is ready because of the place in the scriptures where it mentions the seventh day. Now, now why am I emphasizing all of this talk about the writer of Hebrews and, 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 and how this communication about rest is, is being shared is, is because the writer of Hebrews was trying to introduce them to an idea of rest that was new. 
right? This idea of a paternal rest. And they use perpetual rest and physical rest and, and, and purpose rest to try to bring clarity to, no, 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 you can have all of these, but you got to have this one, right? But the writer of Hebrews, if they were to write today, it would have a different focus. The Bible would be written tomorrow. Hebrews chapter 4 would look really different. Because we've not lost our grasp of paternal rest, right? That's the whole nature of Christianity. That's why we're even here gathering tonight, right? The message of the gospel of Christ, right? That's not lost to us. That's the foundation. This idea of purpose rest, you've heard many sermons in your life from pastors about getting involved in service, right? That's That's not new to you. This idea of heaven You've probably heard a little bit about that before in your life. But you know what's missing in the church today? It's a day of physical rest. What's lost to the church today is this idea that even if I know where I'm going when I die, even if my relationship with God has been restored, even if I have some sense of why God has put me here and I'm all in for that, that destiny, For some of you, you're just flat worn out because you have forsaken this idea of a Sabbath that was one of God's greatest gifts to the world. And you've bought into a myth or a lie that as long as I have these other three, I don't need this one. And God says, no, 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 no. In fact, you're never going to experience the depth of these three without this one. Mark 2, 27, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. This is one of the reasons why so many people say, well, I don't really need to practice this idea of a weekly rest anymore because God says it's really a, a gift. And so if it's a gift, it's, it's, it's right, it's my choice, it's my, my option. It's like if somebody gives you a gift and they're just they're badgering you about, have you worn it? Where is it? I came to your house. You haven't hung it up yet, right? You'd be like, whoa, I don't think this person understands the idea of a gift, right? And so we apply the human experience to our, our, to, to our relationship with God, and that gets us into trouble. Because just because God gives it's a gift doesn't mean it's voluntary about whether you accept it. It means it's voluntary of whether or not you choose to embrace it but it doesn't mean that it's consequence-free if you refuse. If you've got a friend that always brings consequences to you, if you don't want the gift they have, then you need to find a new friend, right? Because that's broken. And our relationship with God, that's different because people don't necessarily understand exactly what we need, but God understands us perfectly. So every gift that he wants to give to us, it's our choice to accept it. But if we refuse it, there can be grave consequences. How about Ephesians 2.8? It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. How many of you here would say the gift of salvation? Ah, take it or leave it. It's not a big deal. But yeah, this idea of a Sabbath, it's a gift from the creator of the universe to you and to me that is a necessary part of the human experience. I think there are people that get to heaven far before they're supposed to 
And the whole reason why their bodies gave out is because they were worn out. And I think one of the things that they hear from God in that conversation that we referenced from Matthew 16 was, you weren't supposed to be here for another 30 years. You got here way too quick. It's one of the road trips that you don't want to get to too soon. It's one of the destinations that we don't want to try to travel there as fast as we can. That there's a a journey along the way. And if you're not putting rest in throughout your week, you're going to get there far too soon. Looking at the history of Sabbath keeping, we find that the Jewish Talmud specified 39 main categories of work prohibited on the Sabbath. Writing more than one letter of the alphabet was prohibited. Every student said, praise the Lord, right? (laughs) Practicing medicine was not allowed unless life was endangered. I read this every time I do this teaching. It's mind-boggling. But this was the reality of their day. The Sabbath had become so legalistic. If a person had a toothache, they could rinse their mouth with vinegar on the Sabbath as long as they swallowed it because that was considered eating. But if they rinsed it and spit it out, that would be considered practicing medicine and they weren't allowed to do it. And so when Jesus comes in and says, hey, whoa, 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 come on, this idea of Sabbath, this was a gift that God intended you. What was he talking about? He wasn't saying it's your choice about whether or not you want to accept it. He was saying, hey, you guys have made a mess out of this thing. You, 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 you put so many extra burdens on people that they're so stressed out by the time they get to the end of their Sabbath rest about whether or not they violated anything. They're more worn out than when they started because they're just nervous. No, no, no. There's one day, every seven days, that God wants us to step into. And then when we get to the end of that day, we're refreshed and rejuvenated for the day's to come, and the weeks, and the months, and the years. Imagine if you were to insert this day of rest into every week for the rest of your life. How much more ready would you be for what's waiting for you 10 years from now, 20 years from now? For, for maybe those that are younger, we can get into the, the idea of 50 years from now, 60. Are you tracking with me? Part of what we have, our responsibility is no different from the writer of Hebrews. What's been lost to our generations today, though, is the physical rest. And we should have the same sense of urgency that the writer of Hebrews had, that the generation that's coming behind us, they've got to get this right, not just for their own well-being, not just so they can fulfill the destiny that God has for them, but we've got to make sure that we get it and that we give it to them because one day we're going to enter into our perpetual rest and we're not going to be here anymore to talk to them about these types of things and we've got to make sure this idea of a Sabbath rest is not lost to the world anymore. Part of the purpose of the City Life Church, part of the reason why we meet on Saturday nights, is so that you can have the opportunity for rest in your schedule. I know that doesn't fit everybody's routine, but what I would say to you is you've got to make whatever changes you need to make to begin to walk in this gift of restfulness that he has for you. And no matter what your schedule is and how challenging it might be, there's a way to figure it out if you're willing to embrace that God has your best interest at heart. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up.
We're going to pick up our conversation next week with attitude and action. And as part of action, we're going to break down some practical things that you can do. Tonight was about hopefully stirring your appetite, that, that, that there's, this, there's a rest that you need to find, maybe that you're not walking in. And next week, we're going to dig into how you can do it. I read this story at least once a year here. I've done it every year at least once for the 10 years that we've been here. It's by John Ortberg, one of my favorite authors. It's called The Life You've Always Wanted. And it's the chapter entitled Dida Day. It says, some time ago I was giving a bath to our, our three children and I had a custom of bathing them together more to save time than anything else. I knew that eventually I would have to stop the group bathing, but for the time it was efficient. Johnny was still in the tub and Laura was out and safely in her pajamas and I was trying to get Mallory dried off and Mallory was out of the water but was doing what has become to be known in our family as the Dida Day dance. This consists of her running around and around in circles singing over and over again, Dida Day, Dida Day. It's a relatively simple dance expressing great joy. When she's too happy to hold it in any longer, when words are inadequate to give voice to her euphoria, she has, she has to dance to release her joy. So she does the Dida Day. On this particular occasion, I was irritated. Mallory, hurry, I prodded. So she did. She began running in circles even faster and shouting Dida Day even more rapidly. No, Mallory, that's not what I meant. Stop with the Dida Day stuff and get over here so I can dry you off. Hurry! And then she asked me a profound question. Why? I had no answer. I had nowhere to go. Nothing to do. No meeting to attend. No sermons to write. I was just so used to hurrying. Hurry, hurry. Wow. So used to a hectic pace. I'm just going to skip that one. She preoccupied, so preoccupied with my own little agenda, so trapped in this rut of moving from one task to another. Some of you, right, this is your life. Here was joy. Here was an invitation to dance right in front of me, and I was missing it. So I got up. Mallory and I, we did the Dida Day dance together. And she said I was pretty good too for a man my age. For some of you, some of the greatest joys in your life, you're just missing them because you're going through life too fast. And God's not telling you to slow down because he wants you to do less. He's telling you to slow down because he wants you to experience more. The depth of life that he wants us to have isn't just always in how far we get, but it's in how deep we go. And you're not ever going to get as deep as you're supposed to go unless you put this little thing called a Sabbath into your week, every week, for the rest of your life. And in doing so, you find the pace to discipleship. It's a race. Paul talks about that. It's a race that we're supposed to win in the sense that he wants us to finish. But it doesn't mean that we win by finishing as fast as we can. It means that we win by going as far as we're supposed to go. And we're not going to get there without a little rest in between. Let's worship together.